Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You only get tested maybe at this level once in four years, you know what I mean? You've got a balls to kick them. So England in possession. And it kicked it away again. Toby Flood. Don't sink! This is not soccer. This is not soccer. Because in either game, life or rugby, the margin for error is so small. Twenty years ago, Munster Rugby was in a very different place. On the ground, looking up, so to speak. Grappling with professionalism's new dawn, managing gates in the hundreds, trying to get some sort of a roadmap to Europe and the new frontier. It was to this daunting platter of problems that Garrett Fitzgerald addressed his first day as Munster's first CEO. That he knew the province, its problems and its potential better than anybody else was not in doubt. But no manual came with the job. A couple of extraordinary decades later, we sat down with the now-retired CEO about then and now, the highs and the lows, the best and the worst, about the brand and the extraordinary support, about changing how we view Munster Rugby. It's raw and it's typically forthright from Garrett Fitzgerald. Here's part one. The first time I met Garrett Fitzgerald, Garrett, I'm not actually sure whether we spoke on the day but I remember speaking to Bob Dwyer the Wallaby coach 1992 you were the coach of Munster um very interesting day Bob Dwyer had some very interesting things to say about Munster rugby but we're going to come back to it because what I wanted to do was begin with Razzie Erasmus World Cup winner now suddenly everybody says outsmarted Steve Hansen outsmarted Eddie Jones, outsmarted Warren Gatland, outsmarted them all. And he was Munster head coach. I mean, what was your experience, Garrett, of Razzie Erasmus? Um, First of all, it doesn't surprise me that he managed to get South Africa to win the World Cup, Mm. even though I did fancy England in the end, but uh, I thought they had a chance. Um, My memories of Razzie is Razzie is... uh, is a very charismatic person. He's a natural leader of people. Um, and he's got a very good communication set and understand, gets to understand people quickly, even from, from different nation, nationalities and understands what turns them on or makes them tick or not tick. Mm. You, know, you could immediately see that. He's a bright, intelligent, academic guy who knows the game of rugby well. Um, wasn't a bit afraid to put his hand up if there was aspects of the game that he wasn't at his best that he'd get people to help him. Right. Um, well, you said a good communicator there. You mean like in, in a dressing room sense or dealing no. with whatever? No. With it, no matter who he meant, he had an ability to communicate and build a kind of an instant relationship with people, Re- excuse me, regardless of the position that they held in the club or the organisation or with mm. media. I think he, he did that naturally. Mm. 
I don't know whether it was something he worked on as a young person or did it not, but he did it well, and I certainly he certainly was impressive as an individual, as a had charismatic, really hard worker, knew what he wanted, was prepared to do whatever he needed to do to to achieve what he wanted to achieve, and bring people with him, whether it was people in the playing side, coaching side, administration side. He had a great ability to do that, mm. and I think uh, that's something that you either have or you haven't. And he certainly had that. Yeah. I mean, do you look with a small degree of envy, regret, the fact that, you know, you had Alad, you had Felix, you had Jacques, and you had Razzie, all that were in with the Munster setup only what, Gar- I mean, probably 18 months ago? And they're now steering their country to a World Cup. Do you, do you ever look back at that and kind of say, what if they'd stayed? Of course you do. You look back in that, but, you know, in professional sport... Um, it's about people having ambition. It needs to be, doesn't need to be something that's too far down the road because professional sport doesn't allow that happen. You need to take things fast if the opportunity arises. Um, I think in one way it's a big backup and support for what Munster recruited. Mm-hmm. That Rassi spotted what was, was available yeah. to him. Um, and it had been with us. Um, having been in New Zealand and worked in Wales, and he's originally from Wales, and Alad had been with us before Rassie arrived. Um, certainly it would have been in our plans and would have spoken to Alad about him extending and staying on with us. But um, look, you've got a very short career in professional sport. He got an opportunity to work with a, an international team, which he wasn't going to get in the immediate short term. He got an opportunity to go to a World Cup, which is huge for a person's CV at any level. Mm. And he now has a medal. Um, Felix was a different uh, thing, I suppose, that Felix always had this um, ability or you could spot something in Felix that you knew he was going to go down the coaching route at some stage. He, As a player, he was an intense, he was quite intense about his game. Uh, probably too intense for his own sake that he didn't relax enough and express himself enough but he was very intense about his game wanted everything to be right all the time was all the time measuring himself looking at what he was doing himself and maybe sometimes didn't take a wide enough picture in his own game and as a consequence got some injuries where with Felix size didn't matter he just saw where he wanted to go it was immaterial the size of the individual was standing in front of him Mm. and that's the way he played he was a he played at international level a number of times, and when he did play at that level, he never looked out of place. He played well. So Felix was always going to be uh, involved in the development of rugby after he played. That's what I felt, but what level, I don't know. The way circumstances worked out with us after Axel's passing and everything else like that, I suppose a mental fell on himself and Jerry's head way earlier than we expected and certainly way earlier than they expected. Mm. Um in my honest opinion, I think they dealt with it exceptionally well. I kind of worked reasonably closely with them, but I was very conscious of the fact that you were dealing with young men who were only in the infancy of a career that were vulnerable to everything that was going with from the international players they worked with to media to everything else that was going. And um, so he's... I think the earlier years he took on, when he took on with Jerry after Axel's passing... I think it was a really pressurised time for him and for Jerry, and um, Jerry probably had a different sense of humour, sense sense about himself, and wasn't quite as intense. Whereas Felix was an intense person, and he took everything really personally. They did a great job together, got us through a difficult time. Rassi came on board, 
um, they certainly saw something in Ressi immediately, given that there were two, what would I say, inexperienced junior coaches. Suddenly someone arrived on their doorstep that they were meeting every morning when they came in who'd done it, who'd played at the high level, coached at the high level, had disability, so they needed something to hang on to and it was difficult. I really, as CEO, couldn't provide that for the lads, but I could advise them and help them. But when you're on the coaching level, you needed someone that was up at that level. So they built a quite a um, a quick attachment with Rassi because they could see something in him about how they could learn. The two of them are exceptional guys for wanting to learn and improve themselves. Mm. So I think Rassi saw that as well in them at different levels of what they had to do. And uh, when Rassi arrived to us, um, he made it quite clear to me and to everyone else who was involved that this was something he wanted to do, but his ultimate aim at the end of the day was to coach the Springboks. He said he was a the Springrock rugby was in his blood. That's what he wanted to do. He was going to do it, no matter how long it took to took to happen. Um, so we we knew that was in the background of what he was going to do. I think he signed up a three year contract with us, and um, he just to be quite straight about it, he stuck to all the rules, regulations and terms and conditions of his contract. Mm. And like in anyone's contract of employment today, there are notice periods and there are different things like that. So he stuck to every single thing that was in his thing. He was aware of all that itself. I think the political situation in South Africa and within the South African Rugby Union was evolving and changing all the time. And there were different people that he was close to and different people he wasn't that close to. So I think... Then all of a sudden, I think there was a few changes and the opportunities arose for him. And um, like without going into the detail of what went on and all the thing itself, but like he 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 immediately knew what he had on his hand with Alad. He knew what he had on his hand, and we knew as well. And uh, and what with Felix and from a long term planning, there were fellows who were on our long term plans, but. As I said, in employment today and, and, and in professional sport, long-term plans are great, but they don't always happen, you know? Yeah. And uh, Jacques Dinabar had come with 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 Rassi, and I think Rassi and Jacques had been quite friendly for years, had met originally when they were in the, in the military service in South Africa, mm. built up a relationship and drifted apart, did different things like that, and... Um, we had a vacancy at the time Rassi came for a defence coach in that area and he proposed and we met him. All the usual process and protocols were in true references and it was, it was a no-brainer of an appointment. Um, and when Rassi notified us that this was something he was going to do, like our wish at the time was that Jacques would stay on and continue and be the... You know, we had hoped in that area and everything else like that, that. That he might succeed him as head coach? He might succeed him in time as head coach and right. all that. But um, I think they were always going to work together. They had worked together numerous times before. Mm. And uh, that's how it worked out. They had a huge uh, respect for each other. The great work ethic together. They had a great... They were just two two very good people. And I was thrilled last for the two of them and for Adad and for Felix. Mm. You know, to get an opportunity for somebody to hang a World Cup winner's medal around your neck, you don't get that too often in life, regards what you have to do, and especially when you haven't chased it. No. And it's probably come earlier than you, a lot earlier than you expected. It's a bonus, you know. So Because, Gar, that was a road Munster travelled a lot, going to the Southern Hemisphere, whether it was Gaffney, whether it was McGahan, whether it was Rob Penny. And I guess you always knew it was going to end in tears. 
in the sense of like they were always going to leave they were always going to come home so when you're appointing someone like that do you know that you were dealing in short-termism to some degree um, the way professional sport is today you're always dealing in the short term someone's going to arrive someday with a fat checkbook and offer someone something mm. someone's going to have a family issue that they don't settle so you 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 know whilst you have these deluded long-term dreams of what things are going to happen you must remember all those people have dreams themselves about where their careers are going to take them and they've got a short window to make to make a living for the future mm. and they certainly don't earn as much as players so um you're never going to get long-term appointments like that and if you get overseas people coming in you're bringing them in for a reason because they believe they can improve what you're doing at the moment in in a short term which is two or three year period and help coaches that you have but the demands of being a, a professional rugby coach now have changed so much even in the last three or four or five years what's expected of people from analysis to how the game is changing all the time how the fences are changing how attacks are changing it's um you can't you can't talk long term mm. because um you know people's careers are sometimes decided by people who are not on the field as well and that can happen so um you're looking to get a person who's going to improve the players you have get you better results and hope you win your trophies that's what you're looking for mm. and because of because of the people getting involved in that career in the southern hemisphere earlier than they started doing in ireland the people are retiring there's been a greater selection of people available i think as we go for forward over the next six or eight years ten years there'll be more irish people available i think right. i think you might see more english people working here as we've seen at national level you see people like Jerry Flannery, Felix, you can go on through all those guys. Axel would be still coaching if he was alive. So there's a lot of people like that. There's a lot of very good juicy like Leo Cullen, who's a highly successful coach, was a great captain of Leinster, was a great player, a, an underrated person, in my opinion, highly intelligent rugby player, highly successful captain of Leinster through, I think, three, was it three Heineken European Cups. Mm. That doesn't happen by mistake. So there's a lot of good people like that. I had a great time over the years for people like Mark McCall. I think he got... He was just unlucky the way things fell in Ulster Forum. I think he's a great guy. I always thought he was a great guy. And he's proven it at Saracens mm. at the highest level. You know, there's a lot of... Um, Raj. Raj is now going through all the yeah. things for him. And I chat to him an odd time. You know, and it'll be... You, there's a lot of look involved as well. You need results to fall the right way, fall the right way for you. Mm. And um, there's a lot of guys like that coming through. And I think you'll see more Irish guys on the scene. Mm. In um, I, just, I, I can't think of the assistant in Connacht's name, though, who did the Irish under-20s. I know I'm well. I'm just going to put another example of a good young coach. Mm. And their fellows have come through the academy. So I think you'll see more Irish people coming on the scene. Mm. And the southern, less maybe Southern Hemisphere influence, you might still need the uh, top-class guy. But I think there'll be more of a mix as we go forward. Because... I Sorry, is it like we, we kind of create this mystique in our head, like, you know, and maybe it's we're, we're taking it from the football about, you know, dealing with agents and contracts and like how complicated a process is it? Was it? You know, I mean, you've, you know, you've dealt with Australians, Gaffney McGahan, you've dealt with Rob Penny, you've obviously dealt with Van Gran, you dealt with Erasmus. Is it a straight, is it a more straightforward process than we think or is there a lot of, shit to be got through experience in the process is important mm. like in any process you make mistakes you learn from them 
But um, the first thing you got to remember is that rugby is a very small sport internationally. There's only six or eight countries in the world that are playing rugby at the highest top level. Even you look to the most recent World Cup, um, if you take Japan out of the World Cup, I'm not too sure I'd have watched too much of it. I found it a disappointing World Cup. Ireland were poor, Scotland were poor, Wales had injuries, Australia were poor, France were poor, Argentina were poor. So need I say any more, you know, about the World Cup we're looking at. And um, I think that it's, 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 it's a job. You interview for a job, you get the best person for the job, you know the criteria that you need in the person, but coaching individuals to perform at the highest level on a Saturday between four white lines, you know, the, your CV alone isn't good enough for that. It's about the person. Mm. You must, you're must. you still looking for the right person. They get of all the credentials and all the qualifications, but you must get the right person. And sometimes... The person who'll sit exceptionally well in one country may not be able to uh, motivate or communicate with motivate or communicate with an Irish person as they will with a New Zealander mm. or with a South African. It's like if you get an Irish coach who goes to Australia, mm. will the Aussies take to him? Mm. But it, the question is, will will he take to the Aussies? Will he make an effort to take to them? And that's communication. And that's yeah. communication. And that's why the good coaches are able to adapt to what's happening locally work with the local guys and get the best out of the local fellas. So it's they're interesting processes, but it's it's in a way it's easier now because people uh sports companies and recruitment companies, they specialise in coach recruitment, they specialise in defence coach recruit they specialise in different areas. Mm. So uh if you're approaching if you're approach recruiting in the morning, you just go you go to the people, there's only two or three people to go to. There's not twenty, there's not ten. You go to me and say, we're looking, this is the spec, this is what we're looking for, this is what we're looking for, what have you available? And you might get... Who are you talking to there? Agents? Yeah, but their agents are, that's a word, you're looking at, they're gone bigger than agents. Like there's specialised rugby recruitment companies that operate on international level and they'll be the same in Australia, New Zealand, Ireland, England. Okay. And they'll, they'll have a small number of people available that'll meet the criteria you're looking for. Snap question, because we're going to come back to it afterwards, Garrett. What is the best piece of recruitment business you ever achieved as CEO? The one where you drove home in the car that evening, having got the signature and said to yourself, no, that is a good day's work. Don't go it, I'd say. Because? Because of the person. Mm. Because of his ability, but more so than anything, because of he's the person and how... Well, we didn't know this at the time, but we'd done a lot. Like you, people think that you just recruit and ring up. There's an awful lot of uh, references, due background checks. Due, that's all done. People don't believe it's done, but we're not stupid enough, or anyone else isn't stupid enough not to do those things. Mm. And you do that in any employment today, and you still get it wrong, but you hope you get it right more often than you get it wrong. Um, I'd say Doug was really was the immediate person springs to mind like that, in mm. a person like that. Um, was that a hard one? Difficult to sell? No. He wanted to come. Well, we had tried to recruit him earlier than when he came, mm. and we'd nearly given up on it. And then we had still spoken to his representatives and said we were interested, and then he wasn't coming. And I think that was the year that they lost the World Cup, where they were beaten in Cardiff. 2007. And I had actually gone on holidays, had gone to, to the States, Myself and my family, and I was sitting in a hotel room in Boston and I got a phone call from a fella to say, 
that's on. That's how it started. It was all done then from Boston on a mobile phone in the space of two days. That's that, that's how it happened. Mm. But there wasn't any question. We knew that's who we wanted. We knew about the individual, the recommendations, the person. And it was what made Doug was the person. Yeah. I know he had finishing ability and he the most, but he was he was the best try scorer and the best finisher because he was a person. He was a highly intelligent uh, keen to learn, did everything he wanted to do, and just proves that I always remember first matches he played. Like his most important thing is, I think in one of the matches he went, he just wanted to stand in the crowd to get the feel of what it was like to play, to get to know the people. He was good at all of that, and that's yeah. why people bought into him as well. And he was a very capable, just a capable individual, highly ambitious guy. Always wanted to do the best and all that. But unassuming. Unassuming. Well. And I'd say he was probably... Those other guys, like Paul Derbyshire, was a marvellous recruitment for Munster mm-hmm. as a strength and conditioning coach. You know, I could go through loads of other individuals. Um, but before you do, uh, and as I said, I do want to revert to that, let me throw it back, because that was Munster, that was Marquee, that was a big name, Munster were a big draw. Garrett Fitzgerald took over as the first CEO of Munster Rugby at the end of 1999. Now, what kind of a Munster Rugby did Garrett Fitzgerald take over in that month? Certainly a lot different than the one that's there now, anyway. I'd imagine. Um, Remember the first time I saw... Well, I'd been involved in... Rugby, I played rugby as a kid from 13 up along, wasn't very good at it, but played and all the ways up along, played up for years and got involved in coaching when I was teaching for a bit. And uh, I think I coached at one stage for about 19 years on the trot or something like that, between under 13 up to Irish universities, up to Munster and different things like that. And a couple of those years I was coaching three teams at a time, it might have been the Irish students, the Irish universities, the Munster under 20s, different UCC different things like that. So but I remember one time going up to an IRFU coaching course in Dublin on a Saturday, sitting on the train with a person you probably know, Charlie Buckley. Mm. And I was reading through the job adverts in the paper and I saw this job advertised in the paper. First of all, this was going back along for a bit. And the first time I saw it, one time I was sitting, this wasn't for the Munster job, it was for another job. I left teaching Okay. And I went coaching to work with Lumber and Ulster Bank. And at the time I worked with JBM and people like that there for years. But And I spent a good number of years there. But another 15 years later, I think I was sitting in the same trainer talking to the same person. I saw this on the ad on the paper. I said, I'm going to fucking apply for this. I said, if, if some other fella can do it, I can do it. I said, I'd do it as good as any fella. This is the monster job. Yeah. CEO. And, that's, and that's how it came about at the time. I was quite happy in the job I was in. But you did know Munster Rugby intimately, though. Well, I knew Munster Rugby inside out because I'd been involved at under-20 level for a number of years. I'd been a selector. I'd been involved at senior level right up to that time and all that. So I knew the ins and outs of everything. And um, so to go back to ask me the question, the first day I arrived in to work, there were two people working for Munster at the time from an administration point of view. And um, there were about four development officers. I think Alton was there, Mark McDermott was there, and the two of them were there at the time. We were down in Penrose Wharf. So there was two people. There was, uh, I think there's currently about, I don't know, there's about 75 people on the payroll anyway. 
excluding players and development officers and all those things like that. It was the turnover in the business at that stage. I don't know what it was. It was about part of a million makes mm. last year. I think the turnover in the figures was about 15 million or so. You know, those are... So that puts it in perspective. And what's happened in between, it's just... It's evolved. Every day you went to work, something new happened because most of the time things are out of your control. You had changed at IRFU level. You changed at a world rugby level. You changed it at... Uh, European Rugby Cup level, you changed the Pro 14, the the Magners League became some other league, they're changing every, all the time. So a lot of the time, you were managing change was a big thing. You had to be innovative, you had to stay at a posse, you had to try and raise money, you were competing with private investors and clubs. So it's yeah. it was an interesting job. Um, can, can I, again, something which should be immediately obvious but it was only when i started thinking about you know when we were chatting you take over in december 99 and i'm gathering if the heineken cup was played in may as it was six months later yeah munster were in a european cup final. i mean talk about a game changer well i knew it'd make a difference pretty yeah. fast <laughs> um, <laughs> but like seriously i mean yeah it was it, it was just uh it was just the start of a bit of a roller coaster. I think if my dates are right, the things stick out in my mind about that year was we played Toulouse in the semi-final in Bordeaux. Correct. Sunny yeah. day. Sunny God, day. I think John Hayes scored a try that day. Jason Holland was playing it out at Raj. There was a Jason and Raj scored. Raj got under the post for a try, yeah. Anyway, I remember it was a roasting hot day, but the thing is sticking in my mind about that. I came back in after the match, and it was a big, long, massive, long corridor down to the thing, and people all came rushing towards him, and they said, we need to see you urgently. Um, so I had to take a phone call to tell me that my young fellow had been knocked down on the Bishop's Own Road, and he was in hospital. I always remember that in the end of the thing, and the phone coverage cut off, so I had no idea what was happening and things like that, so I had no backup for about an hour or so after it. But that's what, as it looked, he got knocked down or he ran across the road when he shouldn't have, but he was fine afterwards, you know. But I just remember that fear factor, fear factor. And the other thing stuck in my mind, like we came back on a charter to Shannon Airport and all I wanted to do was get home to Cork as fast as I could. I was all over the place. I didn't know where I was and I couldn't find my car at Shannon Airport and I saw everyone drive out the gate. Three quarters of an hour later, I was still looking for my car. I couldn't find my car purely because my head was all over the place. Yeah. They're the type of things that stuck in my mind about that particular day, right? Then we got to the final, and I think... I always remember talking to Declan and talking to other fellas, and I said, look, I always remember saying, um, you need to make sure now this is just another match. You can't let the final, you can't let it get to you. It's just another match. It's going to drain you physically. Don't start planning for what you're going to do and all that and everything. But there was so much hype about it. And I think you will listen to some of the players who have spoken since. I think you did get to the fellas a bit, and they'd openly admit that themselves. Yeah. But look, that's experience, you know. If you're playing a final, playing the first round, it is just a match at the end of the day. Yeah, but, yeah but that's easy said. That's easy said. Easy said no. Mm. But they're the type of things that... Um, uh, I would say that it was a kind of... Uh, it, what would I say? It was a... It was, it was a a fast changing with uh, six months mm. the first six months of the job lots of things happened 
Yeah. It was commercial things around the tournament. They were coming at you from all angles. I didn't even know some of the time who I was dealing with. You know, it was just, it was like getting hit by a... Because you were probably still a one-man show at this well, stage. Well, it was only a one-man extent. show and you brought on two or three people to help, but that was it. There wasn't money to expend. You didn't know what you wanted to expend. You know, that's yeah. it. It was, it was just a sudden growth of a big thing. And then after the final, with the amount of support was at the final, the whole thing took off and it became an international kind of dimension to the thing itself. Supporters Club grew out of it. There was new sponsors. All those things, they took time, but it was a whirlwind is the word yeah. I'm looking for. Again, it would seem like a ludicrous thing to say, but for what followed, um, you know, the famous bandwagon, whatever way you want to interpret that saying, in the long term, it wasn't necessarily a bad thing not to win the first final, if you know what I mean, in that the whole, the passion grew, the kind of desire, like, to, you know, we wanted, you know, something that didn't happen until six years later, this, this crusade almost among Munster rugby people to win a Heineken Cup that would have all been gone Garrett if they'd won it first time out yeah I'd still have taken it you know if it, <laughs> if I'd still have taken it if it happened because you're always afraid of your life you won't get another chance mm. in sport you might only get one chance you know there's lots of people might go to six All-Ireland hurling or football finals and never get a medal I'm sure we can think of some of the Mayo fellas when we think of things like that yeah. that people you'd love to see have a medal so um to an extent, now looking back on it, it was a good thing. If it was seen to be seen to be that easy, people might have just accepted it and say, "What's next?" You know. Mm. So it did build, as you said, into a kind of a crusade. Uh, we were lucky that there were a, a group of players who stayed on over that period of time, mm. and it was something that just drove them on more. And um, Declan was involved at the start, and he was involved at the end of winning the thing. And all. I'm sure that was a huge part in tying the whole thing up together and the person understanding what it meant to people rather than a new coach coming in and trying to imagine what people had gone through in 2000 or 2002 and things like that. So it certainly was. And I suppose, look, you the hungrier you get for something and the more taste of it, the more you want something like that yeah. itself. So certainly you're right, I'd say. But I'd still have taken it in 2000 if it happened. When I'm talking, you know, to O'Gara, um, and once in a while, you know, he will put in a throwaway comment to you um, that, he, you know, he's only just articulating the subconscious there himself, where he says, when you look back now, there was an extraordinary group of, not players, just going back to what you said earlier, people, that there was an extraordinary group of people that came together. Would you agree that that was a major contributory factor to the success in those days? 100%. You know, you're not going to win trophies in any sport without having a, a special group of people. And that's what I said at the very start about Rassies. You know, a special group. He got a special group of people around him. He knew the players that he wanted. But you have to have a special group of people in a team environment to win something. If it's an individual sport... It only needs one or two people and some people backing them up. Yeah. Here you're talking about trying to get a group of people that could be as high as 50 people. From your fitness, from your masseurs, to your, to your physiotherapist, to your manager, to your travel people, to the people. And the smallest little things make a huge difference to help people's performance. So you need a special group of people. I've no doubt that... That we look at Dublin football. They must, regardless of their ability and their numbers... They, when you see them afterwards, how they behave themselves, Come how they do it. Carry themselves. You saw, yeah. It was the first thing I said about the Limerick team that won the All-Ireland 
for young fellas, they were exceptionally how they, exceptional how they carried themselves with media and different things afterwards. And I'm sure the Tipperary hurlers aren't any different as a group. You don't win without having special group of people, mm. no matter what you're in. You look at the women's hockey team when you saw what it meant to them. You you need that sort of thing in people to be successful. Yeah. And you st- it still doesn't guarantee a success. It doesn't, but like, and I suppose you don't, or maybe you did, maybe you don't fully appreciate that. And of course, you're a lot closer to it than any of us. When they, when you're when you're in the here and now, and you have a Classy, and you have a Hayes, and you have a Pauly, and you have a Quinny, and you have a Raj, and you have a, a Dennis Leamy, and so on, and all the backs and Stringer. I suppose it's only when you look back afterwards and you just say, like, that was an extraordinary collection of people. Yeah, without a doubt. And totally different. A lot of them, to- they are totally different. Mm. But they had a single focus whilst being their, themselves and being their own people. But they just, you develop... Um, I always say one of the things you need in the workplace is respect. You don't have to like people. You don't have to go for coffee with them. You don't have to go on holidays with them. But there was there's a respect always between individuals and a special group of people. And I think that that was there in that monster group of people. Mm-hmm. And whether it was um, Tupoki, who came in, who was a fantastic character, you relate him to a fellow like John Hayes, to a fellow like, I don't know, to Quinny. They're just so different. But there was a huge rugby respect about what they were trying to achieve. Yeah. And, and if you don't have that in the workplace today, and I, I can't see because it is a job. Like, mm. it, isn't, it isn't like going to watch an amateur group of people who come together now and again to train. It is people who go to work every day where standards were pushed and shoved by different people looking after them. And you have to have that respect. And there are periods when things go wrong. Fellas have bust ups and blowouts, but if you have that respect, it all disappears when they know they've got a singular goal about what they're trying to achieve. And I think you need special people to do that. Do Do you think that the aura was there? And obviously, I come from a, no, a non rugby background, and Larry comes from a non rugby background. So this actually genuinely does fascinate me because you can apply it across sports. Like when you talk about the aura and the mystique of a team. I mean, when you go into... Now, I know they were beaten in 2000, but when you go into finals as Munster, do you, have you sensed yourself, Garrett, because you've been there a long time, that that was always there? I mean, you can go back to 1978 and that famous All Blacks and Thoman Park, and you can go back to 92 when you were the head coach. Do you think that the aura has been there all the time, or is that something that you're constantly working on? Um, I would say one of the things historically, I think the reputation Munster had even gone way back along of beating touring sides as mm. something that has stood up internationally. Yeah. If you're down the Southern Hemisphere, it's something to even talk about. Still, the, the fear of fact that a lot of people would talk about Munster, whether you're in South Africa, Australia, or New Zealand. Um, so I think that is something that Munster had and has a name and a reputation being difficult to beat, of winning matches they should have lost and all that. So I think that certainly stood up for people. And I think that built uh, uh, a kind of a reputation for the team that the players didn't want to let down. Mm. So I think that helped a lot in that way. Uh, but at the end of the day, you've got to perform on the field. And um, I think there was a group of fellas there, as I said, there were special people. And they kind of built, the, they built their own reputation and they built their own... Um, 
what would I say, a reputation that other teams knew of them, that they were never going to be easy to beat, they were never going to give in, they were going to be shrewd when it came to the crucial times of the game, that they knew how to see out games. Mm. You had exceptional fellas like Raj, who was, you know, he, um, you know, the fellas always slagged them and we were at the Q&A that she did recently, you know, when, when mm, Steve yeah. Larkin was slagging him about fellas running over him, you know. Yeah. But the thing about him, no matter how many fellas ran over him, you always knew he was going to get up. Mm. Whereas other fellas mightn't always get up. So the fellas that weren't going to get up didn't get picked. You know, that that's yeah. the type of thing that you need you need in a team as well. And you, I think you just get special people like that. And that's why teams win. If I go back along, I remember um, being lucky enough, some of the Kerry teams to meet some of the fellas going back, you know, like Bomber and Ogie Morn and fellas like that. And even knowing, because my daughter went to school with John Egan's daughter and things like that, and knowing those individuals, mm. they were kind of unassuming people, totally. But they 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 just had something, you know, and I'm not just saying it because Larry is here as well, you know. <laughs> if you go to Tipperary, if you go to Dublin, you know, that Dublin team, they wouldn't be winning what they're winning, except they have more than football. Yeah, There's, there's something else. Inside those fellas, you know, you don't just because you're the best footballer doesn't mean you're going to oh, win. Absolutely, you know. So, so I think that's important. Did you uh, consciously, I'm saying, as an organisation in those early noughties, did you consciously cultivate the fan base? Because let's face it, it became a cash cow. I mean, Munster became, you know, ERC must have loved Munster just with the number of people you were bringing and spending in towns across cities across Europe and obviously it was something that I know the players were conscious of Garrett in terms of always acknowledging the support but could I be so cynical as to actually say well we've got to keep this going we've got to keep this on side because you know this is Munster Rugby has become a cash cow yeah well I think a cash cow was taking it a bit too far until you knew what the actual figures were but at the end of the day us surviving along with all the other provinces along with the uh, assistance of the IRFU and the financial model that they run, mm. is that uh, a huge portion of our income every year that we had to have was, was gate money, yeah. right? A certain amount of it was sponsorship money. And go back in the earlier years, things like hospitality and things like that weren't big. But uh, jersey sales and the commissions and things off them through your supplier were hugely important. But... Gate money was a huge part. It still is a big part of it. Now, it's different in professional soccer and things in England at the moment where television money is massive. Some clubs can make a profit without opening the gate. You know, they can actually get a profit in their accounts at the end of the year by not leaving anyone into the stadium for the year. That doesn't exist in rugby, mm-hmm. even in professional rugby and club rugby today. Um, but the whole supporter thing was hugely important and the gate income that came off supporters and everything we did. Like we worked exceptionally hard with supporters, helped setting up the supporters club, worked with them, worked with the uh, kit suppliers, developing everything we could to keep the supporter happy and keep on side. Yeah. Because the supporters were as important to us as the players. And, you know, the players fed off them and the supporters fed off them. Uh, there was a huge promotion of our brand internationally uh you if if you were successful there might be bonuses in your in your sponsorship contracts mm-hmm. there were bonuses for performing in europe but the financial model that operates in ireland means that that goes into a central pot 
but it comes back out again in other ways and everything yeah, else. Yeah, but I used to, I always remember over the years, I'd ring you, <coughs> you know, around the times of getting to Heineken Cup semi-finals and I had this <coughs> innocent presumption, of course, that the fact that you were getting to a European semi-final final meant the money was rolling into Munster. And no, no, that only we, happens in Kerry. <laughs> but you but set me, you used to set me right every time and you used to have the percentages and you used to say, well, no, because no. it all goes here and there. No, well, like the, the simple answer to it is, is professional rugby in Ireland is pre- predominantly funded by the international team. The, in, the four provinces in Ireland as individuals couldn't stand up on their own. Mm. Leinster would come, become the closest to it, but you'd have to have a different contracting model. So it's a matter of getting a bit from everywhere, but the Six Nations and the international game still fund, I don't know what the percentage of it, it might be 80%. Really? A professional rub, that's the bottom line. Mm. And that's why you see all the thing with Steve Henson and talking about the Northern Hemisphere con- countries won't buy into what they want to do yeah. because the money's in the Northern Hemisphere more than the Southern Hemisphere in the TV deals and everything like that. So that's. Yeah. But like my point was, you were saying that using the ERC used to take a awful lot of the gate money, even if there was an, a, a Heineken Cup semi final in oh, Ireland. Yeah. Well, yeah. if you. If they if you get to an ERC final, you don't get anything. You don't right. get anything. It's all it's the whole gate is belong to ERC or EPC or whatever they're called now. Then that you, you you get for your for your um, even for having a home qualify for a home quarter final, half the gate goes to the opposition after costs. So whether Toulouse come to Toman Park or Munster go to Toulouse. You have thing. to have an officially audited account. You're allowed 20%, I think, for costs and staging the match. The rest of the gate is divided in half. That's how it goes. Yeah. And if you go to, uh, I think, that I stand to be correct, but I think the two semi-finals and the final are totally EPCR gates. You don't get anything from, you get an allowance as a cost towards the match day event. I was just going to say, you must get some. You get an allowance sort of thing, but then there is prize money. There used to be prize money for getting to the quarter-final, but that's gone now as well, I think. Yeah. There's only prize money for the semi-final and the final. Okay. So it's, it's not... There's a reason why it's not a cash cow as well, because the overall model of professional rugby in the country has to, mm. has to operate efficiently to give, every, give everyone a chance. At what point, just while we're on the matter of finance, at what point did the financial muscle go from Munster up to Leinster? Was it, is it as simple as when Leinster started becoming more successful and Munster started becoming less so? Uh, I think it's a bit of each. I said, first first of all, um, one of the people I would... Two of the people I would... Um, would I say don't get enough credit for Leinster's success would be uh, Michael Checker. I think he changed the mindset of Leinster rugby... At a time when it need they had, if they always had the players. Uh, when I was coaching Munster at one stage in the amateur year, I remember we used to always say, "What will we ever do if Leinster get it right?" Mm. Right, because they always had the players. So I think Michael Checkett and uh, the the people in the know in Leinster would acknowledge Michael Checkett's input. Right. And second, all the ball, I think Leo Cullen has had a big input for a to captain a team three times to win three European Cups and to go back in. So quickly and do what he's doing, I think, you know, his mm. input needs to be... Now, there's many others with him and dead exceptional players around him, but in the leadership side of things. So they became successful. Um, their whole school 
rugby school thing has grown and constantly produced players at an actually higher, an exceptionally higher level that you won't get in other provinces. Basically, number one because of population, number two because of the economy and the growth of the economy and the way the city has grown in Dublin and the population. You just no matter how much you do, you can't compete with that. But you it doesn't mean that you can you know you're not. You still have to compete, but you're not going to do it as often as they do it. Yeah, because, I mean, again, even from my limited knowledge, there would be that kind of view that there is masses of money washing around, even in the school system, before we even get to the Leinster thing. And I know we have the whole corporate advantage of the capital city and all that, but like that the school system is so heavily funded or well funded, whatever way you want to put it, that it's, it is just literally a player factory. In Leinster? Yeah, in Leinster. Yeah, well, you have the population, and hence you have the schools, and with the economy and the population, you have, you have the wealth as in the area itself, and you have, I don't know what percentage of the population is living in the greater Dublin area, and um, the schools have a very good, what's the word I use, alumni, past pupil system, where they're all very successful, and they're prepared to invest money back into their schools, and I suppose St. Michael's is one of the best examples of that. Um, the budgets that the schools in Leinster spend every year on rugby are is huge. Mm. The what they spend, so there's definitely a production line there. They have full time, maybe rugby coaches and SNC coaches that other schools, certainly schools outside of the Greater Leinster area, won't have anyway. So that gives an advantage. Yeah. But you know, it's been very successful for them. They're producing a great run of players. Um, and I think that's evident in what you see in the results they're pulling, that you know what they're doing when they're missing a lot of their own players. But I wouldn't diminish what's happening in Munster, like from a much smaller base, from a much smaller school base, from a school base that doesn't have anything like the input of money that it has. Munster is still producing a lot of players and fellas that are playing. If you look at the numbers of fellas that are coming through the system, we just need to get a few more guys up to international level. We need to. We need to, if we get two or three guys over the top up to international level, and uh, but it it is it is a huge challenge. Like and the the competition with other sports is big. The competition with young people today not really interested in sport. Going to the gym is a sport for a lot of people now. There's mm-hmm. a lot of people swimming, walking, cycling, doing different things. They're not prepared to put in all the work that was there. Mm. So it's a it's a it's a competitive environment, but that's not any different is for any other sport. Tell me, going back to that period after losing in two thousand, and obviously there was the two thousand and three final against Leicester, and it was another defeat, and maybe that only you know intensified this so called crusade we spoke about. Did you get a sense that you were getting closer as two thousand and six approached, or as you say, was it one of those ones where maybe we may never win this thing? No, I think people thought they could win it. I did anyway. Because I never thought, even the ones we lost, I think there were, we were very close to winning them, even in 2000, if with a little bit of luck and thing, you know, a little bit more experience, things like that, we could have won. Like winning a final is, 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 uh, is the whole thing about getting people and the timing right on the day. All you have to do is look at the Rugby World Cup final last Saturday. England played their final the previous week. South Africa played their final on the right day. Yeah. You know, and there are the margins and the small things. But no, I believed with the group of people and the people who were around at it backing up that we were always going to have a chance. But look, no matter how good you are, you need a little bit of luck. You need a few small things to happen for you. I'm not very good on things, you know, but I think one of the years was it the first year we won it. 
people don't realise I think we were saved or something from going to France for a semi-final because Leinster beat Toulouse down in the south of France. I remember it. And if Leinster hadn't beaten Toulouse, we'd have been playing Toulouse away or, you know, those type of yes. small things that you need, those little bits of look to get you over the line. And the draws you get in semi-finals, even if it's not at home, it's home country. Mm. Those things are very, very important. 2006 semi-final Perpignan in Lansdowne Road, is that right? Can you remember? You and I are as bad as each other on dates. Oh. Don't know. Beeritz? No, Beeritz was the final in no, Cardiff. Yeah. I'm not good on, I we can't can, remember the day. We can come back to that, but you certainly remember the day of the final against Beeritz. And just as you remembered what happened on the final in 2000 for obvious different reasons, you must have come home, Garrett, that night from Cardiff thinking, yeah, this is all changed now. I mean, this is professional, professional. Yeah, when I remember the whole 24 hours around the final of that and that there'd been so much at stake and people had put so much into it, it was, uh, it was, you were in a, uh, you were in a kind of a, an emotional state for 24 hours before it and 24 hours after it. And I always remember, you know, sitting on a flight, flying home the night of the final. It was just like, in another world, like I still remember, you were just kind of sitting in a plane flying home. You didn't, you just, this is, this can't have happened. Mm. That's the the way it was. But I think everyone was so emotionally involved in it, and everything else like that. Everyone was prepared to give everything that was available to give. And when that happens, it comes off some days. You know. Do you know who that semi final win was against? How could we forget Leinster in Lansdowne oh, yeah. Road? Yeah, yeah. So that was. Just remember. That certainly was a special day uh, for a lot of people. I remember it was a very emotional day for Declan, having been involved with Leinster mm. and then to come back on the thing itself. I remember that itself, yeah. Uh, that was an exceptional game, but as much as that, when I come to 2009, Leinster beat us, was it the year they were in, in Croke Park? Correct. You know, the what's his name? The guy, the Aussie guy playing the back row for him, won the match on his own. The back row, for, you know those. They, Rocky they, Elson. Rocky Elson. He was like he was an exceptional on that day. But um, tell that, me though, two thousand and six. You mentioned the word. Everybody was emotionally involved. Like, how do you not? Again, you might think this is a crazy question. How do you not break down and cry when you have gone so far, so often, so many times to the well? You beat your greatest rivals in a semi final, which almost must be greeted with more relief than joy. And then you get to a final. You concede an early try mm. down in the corner, but you still end up coming back. You see those pictures in Limerick on the screen. You must be... And then, as you say, you're coming home on the flight that night. And as you say, you're probably saying to yourself... Wait. Well, I don't know what it is. If I had disability and watching matches, I could sit and watch a match from one end of it to the other and not talk to anyone at either side of me. I'd be watching every single player, what he was doing, what was happening. Mm-hmm. And people often sat near me and said, are you going to sleep or can, what's happening? But I used to even sit, I can sit to this day and all I'm doing is watching what each individual and what different people are doing. So That's the coach in you though. Yeah, but I used, I used to have this emotional, I'd have a lump in my throat, I'd be doing everything, but I'd never speak, I'd just watch. And I remember I never spoke during that match for the whole lot of it. And... When it was over, I don't think I was able to speak, you know, but it was just a, a flow 
a flow of emotion that takes so much time to get through your system, you That's know. Point, yes, and then well, all yeah. of a sudden, fellas are saying, hurry on, the bus is going, hurry on, the plane is going, fellas are going, you know that? Yeah. And all of a sudden, you're at an airport, you're on a flight home, Cardiff Airport or whatever it was, or Twicken or... Cardiff it was, yeah. Was Yeah, Cardiff Airport is a mess. You're climbing over barriers, you lose your children, you fucking lose everything, it goes, goes gaga, and some fella waves at you, and he says, I've got your three children up here, it's okay, I'll take them on the plane. And I said, I have their passports. And he says, fuck it, we'll take them on anyway, it's okay. You know, that's my memory of it. Yeah. Lunacy. Madness, really. Like. Lunacy. You wouldn't get away with any of it today. And even when the fellas told fella stop at the thing, they jumped over everything and ran through security and everything. And, and there were some fellas not able to walk through security. And different. They're my memories of it. Yeah. And uh, But you must, genuinely, because I, I mean, I saw it. <laughs> And obviously, I wasn't as close to the team or the group as you like, but th- there was a whole outpouring of emotion around that time, Garrett. I mean, and it actually manifested people- itself in tears. Oh, yeah, there was people's lives wrapped up in that. There was five and ten years of support. There was people mentally drained yeah. for weeks after it Forever. and before it and things like that, you know. But I always had the feel as well, you still have to go to work the following week, you know. It isn't, it isn't like playing the All-Ireland Hurling final and you're finished until March. Mm. you still had to go to work Monday morning and turn up and be at work and be professional you're paid to be a professional you had to be there so you had to do it and see who will be playing next week you know that's the way it had to be yeah and, but, and when a golfer like Shane Lowry or whoever wins a major mm. like the Open Championship this year like I mean he's pretty much set mm. for life like did it make a difference again I go back because obviously finances the CEOs yeah, not, it doesn't make a difference financially anything like what people expect but what you're trying to do is you're trying to build a whole lot of um, added value that will make a difference. Build your support stuff, membership, and, yeah. build your sponsorship, build your ticket sales, build all the things like that. Yeah. That's the difference. But is there a press button building of funding coming off winning or not? The answer is no. And there never will be in professional club rugby. Mm. Really, because that that's it's not big enough for that as yet, you know. Before there was Gard Fitzgerald, the chief executive, there was, of course, Gard Fitzgerald, the head coach. In part two, we delve back to 1990 when Gard was the head coach for Munster's memorable victory at Musgrave Park over the Australians. We look at how they modelled themselves on Toulouse in terms of European success. We discuss the best signings and the ones that didn't work out. We look at the disconnect or not with Munster's clubs, the changing of the crest the controversial Grobler signing, and of course, the massive, massive loss of Anthony Foley. Join us again next week for part two of this Gard Fitzgerald exclusive. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.